Anderson Cannon, we've got time here on The Breakfast Show. Let's get into our Bible study. Let's see what the Bible has to say. 20 million movement, 20 million people all studying the same passage of the Bible at the same time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. So we had an interesting text message come through, and I think it would be something that would be worth discussing here on Faith FM. Uh, it says this, The reason children go to, er- to school so early is a Jesuit idea. Not holding back here. Um, is that they believe if they train children to the age of six, they will have their minds forever. Nice trick. When you think that most, most politicians are Jesuit trained, well, I don't know about most, but there was a stage in the last 10 years where the vast majority of the French bench in Australia was Jesuit trained, um, and certainly the political leaders of the United States right now are very much Jesuit trained. Um, that explains the planned confusion in the world. But God is in charge. Do you want to give just a little bit, if there's a listener that we have who has just never really heard this Jesuit term before? Yeah, okay, so we'll really get a bit of background on this. The Jesuits were formed by the Society of Jesus, was formed in 1540. No, that was the Council of Trent, 1540. I'll forget the date, but the early 1500s by a Spanish priest by the name of Ignatius Loyola. They were formed as a paramilitary organisation of the Roman Catholic Church. And so, you know, in their hierarchy, they all have, you know, military terminology that they use. You know, they have a superior general and so forth. Um, Ignatius Loyola was a Spanish uh, priest, but he was also a military officer. And uh, they became involved in some really, really terrible things right throughout Europe, um, kind of operating like an undercover operation to a large extent. Uh, a lot of um, really bloodthirsty and violent history involved with the Jesuits. In fact, Abraham Lincoln considered expelling them from the United States because of you know Whoa. all of the things that they were up to. And you know, this is a country that has religious liberty, and mm. he was like, well, you know, they're just causing too much trouble here. Uh, they went on to focus on education. Okay. And so the vast majority of Jesuits, for instance, our Pope uh, at the moment, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, um, are focused on education because they recognise that education was the most powerful way of influencing the world. Totally. And if you change the education system in one generation, you change the entire system. Oh, absolutely. And so... Um, yeah, so that's sort of a little bit of the background of that. Um, the claim here that they invented uh, kindergarten? Yeah, no. I, I would, having looked at the history of this, uh, kindergarten was actually invented by socialism. And so if you look at the early kindergartens, the first ones that sort of came along, they were all, uh, for instance, the very, very first one was a French guy. Uh, where was his name? Was John Oberlin. Um, and he was a Christian socialist. It came to uh, England, the UK, uh, was brought to the to the UK by Robert Owen, who was the founder of utopian socialism. So, and and, th- and this is interesting because you know, obviously socialism is the extreme left wing. That's where we get communism from, and so forth. Um, and if you look at the Jesuit order today, it's very very much left wing. So they're kind of they're, there's definitely a connection there. Um, in philosophy, and the idea behind it when it was first started was that it was an opportunity to indoctrinate children free from the influence of their parents. Mm, wow, actually. Yes. 
That's pretty significant. <laughs> That's pretty significant, um, which is which is you know it goes along with the legislation that they are endeavouring to pass in France right mm. now, where all children need to be in school by the age of three and homeschooling is banned, so that they can wipe out religious extremism. Mm. Well, that's kind of a way of trying to wipe out any kind of religious Religion, faith yeah, at all. That's right. Um, there's about 50,000 French people who choose to homeschool. And, yeah, so I'm not speaking – I'm not saying that a person should never send their children to kindergarten, but I would go on record and I would say that, in my opinion, it is not the best option. Mm. The best option is for kids to be roaming around the bush having fun at that, at that age and being kids. Yeah. Yeah. Just life experience, man. Life Have experience. It, if you hang out with kids, they actually are fascinated by the world around them. They're still little sponges, right? I remember once I was babysitting. We just watched an ant on a stick for 20 minutes and they were so loving life. <laughs> I was like, you don't need to worry about kids. They'll they'll be amazed by so many things. You don't actually need to keep them as entertained as you think you do. Yes. That's my little indeed opinion rant. I was just thinking of all of my relationships with ants when I was before I went to school, and you killed them all. It wasn't <laughs> it didn't it involve watching them so much as yeah, maybe squashing destruction. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear, what's your opinion? What age should children go to school? I started school when I was eight. What age did you start school, and what age did you send your kids to school, and why? Let us know. We'd love to hear your opinion on this one. I'm just mm. sharing my opinion on it. I think that a later age is much healthier for children. But I could be wrong. You might have a better thought. Let us know. We'd love to hear. 1-800-324-843 is the number to call or text us on 0491-064-669. All right, let's get into our Bible study. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 37, uh, 36. Start in verse 21. Okay, didn't we finish this chapter yesterday? Did we? We did. But no, we can keep talking about it. That's fine. I don't mind. I have no problem with it. (laughs) <laughs> I thought we wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me scroll up here and have a look. No, we only we only went as far as verse twenty, unless you went further. No, I read it all. You read it all. Yeah. How many verses are there? Well, there's twenty-two according to my Bible. Okay, so we will <laughs> we will start in verse twenty-one, 21 yeah. just to give ourselves a little bit of context. Yeah. You gave us some extra context last night by finishing it off. Let's let, read those last two verses again before we launch into on. chapter 37. Absolutely. I'm going to say a prayer before I read. Papa, Lord God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity this morning again to open your word together, be with our listeners, and as we read, God, just open our hearts and minds. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Amen. Okay, 36 verse 21 said, The people were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah had commanded them, Do not answer them. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Jonah, son of Asaph, the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair, and they went in to see the king and told him what the Assyrian chief of staff had said. If you guys were with us yesterday, maybe you weren't, but if you were, you'd remember that um, the Assyrian chief of staff had just fully just been like the terrorizing them. Yeah, <laughs> he was just like, you guys are going to die if you don't give in to us. Pretty much. And it was all all the reasons he said would happen to them. There was reason to believe that that was very truthful. There was a lot of truth in what the Rabshakeh was saying. He wasn't just making empty threats. (laughs) Not at all. And so, yes, the fact that the people were like, nope, we're keeping quiet. The king has said, which is interesting because the king then knew it was coming, right? He was like, yeah, he's going to try to scare you. Don't just, 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 
Don't, don't say anything. a word. Yeah. <laughs> and what is also interesting is the level of loyalty that Hezekiah has. Yes. If you're living in Jerusalem, do you have that level of loyalty? Mm. You know, uh, you, you sort of have to really stop and think about my life is on the line here. The life of my family is on the line right here. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Yeah, <coughs> excuse me. I went to talk. Oh. I've got a bug in your throat. It's over to you, Minnie. Oh, don't die. Keep breathing. Uh, so, yes, we were reading that. I'm going to start reading Chapter 37. So we're going to continue on with this story. Um, <coughs> verse, uh, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests, all dressed in burlap, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Okay, so let's stop there for a moment. Burlap, that's kind of like uh, a gunny sack. Okay, yeah. Your traditional gunny sack. Mm. Ah, so, hopefully, hopefully I'm getting rid of all of these. Um... <laughs> so they're not particularly well dressed, basically. No, why is that? Why? I mean, you know, these are the leading people of the nation of Judah who would typically wear, you know, clothes of royalty. Mm. Why are they not? Well, you kind of see this a little bit in the Old Testament where you kind of, yeah, you tear your clothes, you sit in, yeah, I guess these sacks, you know, sometimes you pour, you know, ashes on your head. Sort of. It's sort of this deep um, state of humility, I guess, you're putting yourself into. Um, sometimes that's a place of repentance, you know, or just deep sorrow or, yeah, just like, what are we going to do, God, you know? it's It was a very culturally appropriate thing at the time. Which we don't do now. Obviously. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we, um, you know, when you look at this story right here, you find that there are a number of reasons why um, a, a person would be wearing sackcloth. So a person wears, wears sackcloth or a gunny sack or burlap, as it says in your translation, when they're in mourning, mm. when they are repenting, or when they're in deep distress. Yeah, those those three times, and so. I tend to think that Hezekiah is pretty much qualifying for all of them. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot of reason why he has he is in mourning, he's in deep distress. The Assyrians are camped outside, and it's not going to be a good thing. What? What? Coming, going back to um, you know the people on the wall. You know, you've got a tremendous amount of loyalty here because. Mm. At this particular point, they could be very tempted to go and cut Hezekiah's head off and give it to the Rabshakeh and, you know, at least save some of their lives. Mm. But they're not even engaging. No, they won't even engage. Mm. Um, they have unified and they have taken a stance of total war. Yeah. So total war is when a government uh, creates an environment in which every person's activity every day is focused on the war effort. Mm, mm -hmm. So if you are doing an activity that is not focused on the war effort, you are to stop and you are to change and you are to do an activity that is focused on the war effort. And we've got a number of examples of that down through history. For instance, during the uh, Second World War uh, and the Battle of Britain, uh, Churchill, Winston Churchill put the nation of Britain or the, the, the country of England um, on a, you know, a, a standpoint, on a position of total war. Mm. So that when you woke up in the morning, you had to ask yourself the question, what am I doing for the war effort today? 
You know, and that might be as simple as walking down the street and collecting everybody's aluminium pots so that they could melt down the aluminium and make aeroplanes. This is actually incredible. What a way to live. I mean, I imagine there's an element of stress. That could have been something also as simple as going to um, the local city park where you have a plot of land that has been assigned to you within the city park, digging that up and growing food. Yeah. That was what they did. You know, that, that's that's what they did, you know, in England and places like London and so forth when they went on to a, a, uh, a position of total war. Mm. Every day you woke up and asked yourself the question, what am I doing to further the effort of the war? The war? And every person was to do something every day that was focused on the war. And this is the this is where Jerusalem is at at this time. They are building the walls. They are building towers. They are being, bringing provisions into the city. They are building, you know, Hezekiah's tunnel to to keep the water inside the city. That's right. Every single thing that every person is doing is total war. Mm. And you see this in you know in cities and nations and societies from time to time, where that's the footing that they are on. You know, during that period. Such an interesting way of having to live. Yes. You know? So foreign to yeah. the average person. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and if it was you and I at that particular time um, or if, if we were placed on a footing of total war right now here in Australia, then when we come to work here in the radio, it would be, okay, what are we doing to promote the interests of the war that is happening at this particular time? That would be our job mm, yeah. in, a, in a time of total war. Yeah. You know, how does what we are saying here on the radio affect that? And if it's not affecting that, well, then go and do something that is. Mm. Oh, you know what? I just, that's an object lesson for just the Christian life though, right? Could you imagine if we took that approach? And I don't mean that in a like checklist kind of way. But okay. if we went every okay. single one of us has All a right. mission. Yes. What are we going to be about today? So every day when you wake up. Mm. You, start, you ask yourself the question, we are in a situation where we are, as Christians, in total war. Mm. We're on a footing of total war. Yeah. What am I going to do for Jesus today? Yep. How does what I am doing through this day, how does that affect the great controversy? And I actually think, is a little personal opinion, that if we had that focus, it would stop a lot of infighting because we'd be like, we have a mission, we've got to get on with it. Yes, we'd be too busy. Yeah, too busy doing the work. Real battles, yeah, yeah, actual yeah. battles, than being able to fight each other. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this is a good thought. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say. Oh, sorry, yes. you were going to say something. I was oh, just sorry. going back to Isaiah. I find it interesting that they, um, you know, they're in this place of distress, and obviously we know a little bit of Hezekiah that he had kind of brought this spiritual reformation back in. But you really, you really see the difference between him and his father Ahaz, because when Ahaz was like, "Ooh, I'm in trouble." Go to all these other nations. Other nations are like, we're not actually going to help you. Whereas they're like, we've got to go to the temple. We've got to go to God. Isaiah, you're a prophet. We need to hear what God has to say. There's a very big difference in your, yeah, I guess your go-to place of comfort and answers. So Isaiah, Hezekiah has placed the nation on a footing of total war. Mm. But he recognizes that no one's ever going to, no micro nation is ever going to stand up to the Assyrians. Yes. And so when the Assyrian commander comes and, you know, has this speech and says, well, you know, 
we've done this to this country and this country and this country and Egypt's a waste of time and you know that already because Isaiah's already told you that and we're here because God told us to be here mm-hmm. and God told us to destroy the nation of Judah because you know you've been worshiping idols and he, he even talks about well you know all of the uh, all of the gods that could have protected you you've taken down their high places and their altars and you have destroyed them Mm. You know, because you guys were serving our Assyrian gods because they were more powerful gods, but you've turned away from those gods and now you're serving this Yahweh. And so, you know, um, this is this is why we're here and this is what we've done to these other nations, this is what we're going to do to you. Hezekiah recognizes the truth of that. He does what he can. Mm, that's right. You know, it doesn't he doesn't just sit back and say, Well, you know, let's sit back, relax, let God do the whole thing. Mm. No. He does what he can. That's right. And then leaves it up to God. Yeah. And then goes to the temple to pray. This just reminded me. I'm reading a book currently. It's called Rura, and it's about um, a man in who was a Waldensies back in oh, maybe the 1600s. I can't remember. His name's Joshua someone. And it's Giannavello. Yeah, that one. Super interesting story. Basically, Giannavello. They were completely outnumbered, like from the beginning. Oh, yes. And yet they had a lot of success. He had his down. best odds in his first battle. Yes. Which was six men against 500. 500. And the odds only went downhill from there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his, his, his army increased in size. I think it maxed out at about 80 men. Yeah, it was never big. I mean, yes, they had a bit of natural defence because it was, you know. Yeah, they had the greatest natural fortress in the yeah, world. Yeah, amazing. But. <laughs> but still, it was really interesting to look at how much of the he was just like, this isn't about fighting just for fighting's sake, you know. We're not here just to be like, yeah, we're going to go to war. No. He was just like, no, there's a reason we're fighting for. And, hey, you guys, don't you forget to humble yourself before God. That's right. It's just super fascinating as a character. And this just kind of reminds me of this where it's like you have Judah, total micronation, but they have their trust in God. They're like, yeah, yeah we'll go to war. We need to humble ourselves before God, but we'll go to war. And it's, it's interesting. Actually, it's a very interesting comparison because the uh, the Waldenses, um three valleys were about the same size as the nation of Judah. Aye. Uh, so they owned three valleys and they, they had natural fortresses, whereas Judah had Jerusalem as a... As a um, but what's also interesting is if you go to Italy, um, you can stay in Joshua Guianovello's home. Oh, that's it's an cool. Airbnb. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We will. (laughs) While we are waiting for it, we will go back to our Bible study. Yes. Let's read some more verses. Where were we up to? Let's uh, let's read down through to read through to verse twenty. Okay. Okay. So I'll start at verse three. They told him, "This is what King Hezekiah says: Today is a day of trouble, insults, and disgrace. It is like when a child is ready to be born, but the mother has no strength to deliver the baby. But perhaps the Lord your God has heard the Assyrian chief of staff." sent by the king to defy the living God and will punish him for his words. Oh, pray for those of us who are left. After King Hezekiah's officials delivered the king's message to Isaiah, the prophet replied, Say to your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be disturbed by this blasphemous speech against, uh, against me from the Assyrian king's messengers. Listen, I, will move my, I, will, I myself will move against him, and the king will receive a message that he is needed at home. So he will return to his land well, I will have killed him with a sword. Meanwhile, the Assyrian chief of staff left Jerusalem and went to consult the king of Assyria, who had left Lachish and was attacking Libna. Soon afterward, King Sennacherib received word that King 
Tihaka of Ethiopia was leading an army, an army to fight against him. Before leaving to meet the attack, he sent messengers back to Hezekiah in Jerusalem with this message. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them, such as the nations of Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar? My predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the kings of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ivar? After King Hezekiah read, uh, read this, received this letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord, O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations, and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. It's yeah, a solid wow. passage. It is. Yeah. It's a great passage. Yeah. This is, this is Hezekiah's response. He's like, we have done everything that we can do. We have strengthened the city as much as we can. We have filled it with supplies. We have, um, we have brought water into the city. We have you know, built towers and defences and weapons and arms. We've done everything that we can. And now, God, it's up to you. Yeah. And uh, have a listen. Any, any, any challenges, God, there? Sometimes I think it's good for us to challenge God. I think God likes it when we challenge Him. He challenges God and says, "Okay, God, listen to what these listen to what the uh, the, the king of Assyria had to say." Mm. King of Assyria had uh, this, you know, he, he's he's blaspheming you, out, and he talks about all these other gods that you know, all these other nations that he's he's attacked and gods that he's destroyed. But then he points out with all of those other nations. And you can put yourself in Sennacherib's shoes and he's like, well, why would Yahweh stand in my way? Yeah. Seriously. Why would I be worried about Yahweh? Mm. You know, I've, I've, I've taken this nation and this nation and this nation and this nation and this one and I've taken all their gods and thrown them in the fire. That's right. What am I worried about Yahweh for? And Hezekiah's like, yeah, but they weren't actually gods. Mm. And he's like, of course they were burned. nothing. Yeah. They were nothing. This is what Isaiah says. They're nothing. Yeah. So, of course, yeah, you can burn those kind of gods. You can't burn Yahweh. What are you, how are you going to do that? You know, you're the creator God, the God, the ruler of heavens and earth. All right. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so okay. we were talking about Hezekiah. We were. And we also talked about Tehaka in that particular passage there. Yes. The Ethiopian, the uh, who is the ruler of Egypt. And I think a lot of people forget that the Ethiopians ruled over Egypt for a while. Mm. Uh, this was a northern... Um, Ethiopian Empire, so an empire that came out of Kushite Ethiopians, and it became you know one of the largest empires of the world at its time. You know, you look at uh, Ethiopia and Somalia and so forth today. Um, the Sudan, sorry, not Somalia, but the Sudan, and you sort of think you know those are kind of minor nations in our world today. But we've got to remember that in the past these were 
massively powerful mm. empires. Uh, the Southern Ethiopian Empire of Axum and the Axumite Empire once rivaled the Roman Empire. I mean, you think about that. That's solid. Oh, yes. Wow. Oh, yes. I didn't yes. know that until right now. There you go. It was a huge empire. And at this particular time, this is probably the greatest extent of the Kushite Ethiopian um, Empire. And they're, they're going to march on the Assyrians because the Assyrians are coming too far south. They're coming to, you know, as they work down through Palestine, they're heading for, towards Egypt. And these are buffer states that Ethiopia has, you know, um, and Egypt has been trying to build alliances with so that they can have a buffer against the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are getting a bit too close, so they run an army up there to, you know, to stop them. It's going to distract Sennacherib for a bit, but not for long. You know what I find really, I love this though, that God says, hey, 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 listen to me. I myself will move. Yes. You know, I'm going to, and then, He's you know. He's personally going to become involved. That's right. And Hezekiah, he kind of makes his, where does he say? He's just like, oh, Lord of heaven's armies. It is no small thing to have this being on your side. You know? No, like, that's right. <laughs> that is no small thing. He's just like, I've got you. Like, I've got you back. This is, you know, in the Bible, God says, I'm the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I'm the God of war. Like, he steps in. That's amazing. And then God says, you know, Sennacherib, he's going to go back to his own home and he's going to be killed with a sword in his own home. Yeah, yeah. The place where generally we think of home, oh, the place I feel safe. That's right. He would feel unsafe attacking the Ethiopian-Egyptian mm. coalition. He would feel unsafe even attacking the cities of Judah. Yeah. He would feel safe when he's home. And that's where he's going to die. He goes home and... He's amongst family. Mm. He's amongst his own children, and his children kill him. That's a rough time. Oh, that's what the times were like back in the day of the Assyrian Empire. There was, you know, you can tell it comes from. A, that's a very traumatized family when something like that happens. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Anyway, we, <laughs> it is now time for. Four. It is now time for. We'll get there in a minute. Question of the day. Okay, our question of the day is: What is the book of Obadiah about? It's not a book we read that often. Well, okay. So the book of Obadiah is. Let me count generations here from Nahor. (laughs) The book of the book of Obadiah is about the great great grandson of Nahor, which is who Edom. The Edomites. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so it's all about God's judgment upon the Edomites. Mm. And the Edomites, of course, they turned away from God. They turned to idolatry. They were in a desert region. If you want to go to modern-day Edom, you're going to have to travel to the country of modern-day Jordan. And you can see one of the most amazing cities there that dates all the way back to the time of Esau, um, which is Petra. And you can you can visit most of the ruins there are Nabataean ruins, but there are ruins there that go much 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 further back than the Nabataeans. Okay, so why would why would there be a whole book of the Bible that is just focused on Edom? Okay, so there's a number of things that um, that sort of jump out to us in relationship to the descendants of Esau. Esau was a hairy man, the Bible says, and he was red all over. Mm. If you go to Eden, Edom, sorry, Edom, not Eden, but Edom, it the whole countryside is made out of red sandstone. 
So red and they live in the desert and um, in the Rocky Mountains. It's just the most amazing place you've ever laid eyes on. Um, If you go to Isaiah chapter 63, there's this interesting prophecy which says this, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments? From Bosra. This is that this is he that is glorious in his clothing, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then it goes on, it changes um, changes person and says, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. Mm. So it's almost like God is asking the Jesus is asking the question, who is this person coming? Well, that's me. I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. Well, why is he coming from Edom? And why are his garments dyed red? Okay, so he's coming from a place where there are red people living in red rocks and his garments are dyed red. The Bible goes on, it says, Wherefore wherefore are you red in your clothing and your garments like him that treads in the winepress? So, uh, you know, stained with grape juice. He then replies, Jesus then replies, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them down in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled on my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Mm. And it's a twofold prophecy because it's a prophecy obviously about what Jesus did on Calvary where he um, went to the cross and there was none to help him, no one to help him. He did that alone. All forsook him and fled, the Bible says. He trod the winepress of the wine of the wrath of God. He experienced that for himself so that we don't have to. But then the prophecy goes on and extends into the future and you have the parallel in the latter part of Revelation chapter 14, the great winepress of the wrath of God, which is trodden in the end of Revelation chapter 14 right there. And you find that we have two choices. We can accept Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, his salvation for us, or we can be trodden in the winepress of the wrath of God. Jesus has taken it for us. He comes to us and says, I've experienced that. I've been there. I've done that so that you don't need to. So don't do that. And Edom becomes a symbol of all of the wicked at the end of time. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.